Well, good morning. It is great to have you with us. And that song, Hall of Faith, just resonates with me. The idea that I want my life to make a difference. I want my life to not just have success, but to have significance. I want my life to count, don't you? And in this series we're in called Unshakable, we're talking about a way, a type of mindset that's somewhere between cynical pessimism over here and naive optimism over here, this unshakable truth that your life can have significance. And rather than just it being about reaching the summits of your own goals and elevating yourself, we're learning about a man named Joseph who learned to ascend to the highest heights and pursue his wildest dreams by exalting other people. And God exalted him. And I want you to hear the story today of somebody who pursued an unbelievable goal, an unbelievable literal summit in his life, despite all kinds of challenges, as we learn today how to have optimism from the bottom of a pit. Let's watch. Look at that. The rock looks surprisingly clean. The base of it is just right down there and it comes all the way up. <laughs> wow. <laughs> So, is he going to lead it, yeah? He is going to lead it, yeah. <laughs> really? <laughs> That's a different story. Like, you hear quite a lot of publicity about people doing the old man of height, whatever, old people, young people, blind people, but they're always seconding. Like, yeah, is that a good idea? <laughs> Sounds like my kind of idea. Sounds like a terrible idea. So there's a rock here that you need to step across. Yeah, found it. <laughs> I have a genetic condition that affects my eyes. So over time, as more of the back of my eye dies off, my vision degrades. Most of my field of view just doesn't exist. I didn't think I would ever give up climbing totally, but I certainly questioned whether or not I was going to be able to lead and certainly trad routes. Probably the big step change was in about 2012, something like that, that's when I lost the ability to read anymore. It doesn't really matter how big you make the text, uh, I can't read it. So I was born with about 20% central vision and no peripheral. Imagine you're like looking down a straw. Yeah. Um, and then over time, that little straw has had successive layers of cling film added over at the end. Right, okay. Don't know how many we're up to now, but yeah. a few. I'd love to head up to Scotland and climb the old man of Hoy. It's, it's an iconic route and it's not easy. It's E1, that's, you know, a respectable grade. I think to get that done would be awesome. definitely the hardest climb I've ever attempted. That's why you do it. You don't do these things because they're easy. Like, you do them because they're hard. You do it for the challenge. You want the satisfaction. You don't get the satisfaction unless there's a chance of failure. Obviously, this will be the first time a blind man's ever, like, led the old man of Hoy. So it'll be nice to be in the history books. Something pretty special, I think. The amount of time he spends on the climbs is three or four times more. So this where he's locked off and he's, he's, he's searching. And so the time he actually spends not just on the route but on individual holds is much, much longer than your average person. You just do a little pot to get over it. Nice. So we've had to also include little exercises to try and maximise on that. 
when we were first talking, I remember I was impressed by the fact that he led indoors. I was like, all right, this guy's pretty, pretty tough, pretty serious. And then when I found he was doing trad outdoors, I, I don't know, just like mind blown, just, um, are you kidding? <laughs> like, what? And, and not only that, but I mean, he's, he's climbing HVS consistently. Classic routes that are high on, you know, your average climbers take this, and he, he's, he's doing them. You miss about three or four holes on that. What? <laughs> <laughs> like, if, if you're climbing at your limit and you can't see, man, like, it's, yeah, I don't know. Well, man, I hope this series will help you to just dream on to whatever challenges you're facing, whatever difficulties are before you, that you will be able to pursue your wildest dreams and maybe even discover that God has some wild dreams for you as well. I remember it was like 12 years ago, my son just turned 12, when we adopted him and man, nine months in, we found out he was blind. And I remember the kick in the gut that was and just the mourning of all the things that wouldn't be. And then 18 months later to find out that he had autism and wondering what that meant. And yet to look back over 12 years to pits and challenges and see how faithful God has been. How he's given us the tools, grown us, equipped us with tools we didn't have, didn't even know we wanted. Uh, but became a better version of ourself by devoting the last 12 years to serving and to helping and to pursuing dreams far different than what my wife and I ever imagined. What are your dreams? What are you pursuing? What are the summits that for you represent success? We've been learning about Joseph, a dreamer, who had a lot of dreams of one day impacting the world. And he does, but in a very different way than he might imagine. Is it possible that sometimes we pursue the wrong summits and we have to be redirected to a different one? In his book, Into Thin Air, the writer tells the story of that fateful trip in 1996 with Rob Hall I mentioned last week. Rob Hall had led many, many people up Mount Everest, and yet... That day, because of a whole combination of events, that entire team died on Mount Everest. But into thin air, they tell the story specifically of Yasuka Namba, this incredible woman who had ascended six out of the seven biggest mountaintops in the world. And she was absolutely determined and resolved to stand on top of Mount Everest that day. 
Well, her determination helped get them there. And her determination in others is what helped them push through some of those common sense protective mechanisms that was supposed to save their life that day that they blew on by. In fact, she was so determined to get to the top of that mountain to make this the seven out of her seven that she was the first in the pack. One guy mount, pounding the, the, the ropes into the side of the rock and she would sometimes throw her full weight on telling everyone behind her to throw the weight on before it was fully pounded in. She was so determined to get to the top, almost putting her own life and everyone behind her at risk. She does make it to the top. But because of the snowstorm and because of the challenges, she and everyone in that team will die that day on Mount Everest. And the writer says that the reason they died that day, though they accomplished their goal, is because they had the wrong goal. I mean the wrong goal. Their goal was to get to the top, but they didn't leave enough energy to get back down again. See, what if the goal is to get to the top, but it's pretty lonely at the top if you get there without any friends and without any recreation or without any hobbies? Is it possible we have a good goal, but it's the wrong goal? If your goal is, I'm going to do that thing no matter what, no matter what the cost, it may cost you everything. If you've been in pain for a while and you say, I got to get out of pain no matter what it takes, you may get out of one pain while causing a bunch of other pain. Now, what if our goal was different? How do I reach that goal in a sustainable way? How do I pursue that goal in a wise way? How do I pursue that dream in a way that makes me flourish and those around me flourish? Now that might change your strategy, might change your timing, but you also might get to the mountain and back again. See, her greatest accomplishment, standing on top of Mount Everest, was just a couple hundred yards from her greatest defeat when she died just a couple hundred yards away because she had the wrong goal. So I think for many of us, the goal of life, we think, is to avoid pits, get out of those pits, those uncomfortable places to climb mountains but rather what if the goal of life is not to avoid pits and climb mountains but to use pits in my life to equip me to climb mountains what if I need those pits and I need those valleys to give me the tools I need that God wants to hand me to equip me with so that I can climb the, the mountains and the summits that he has for me that's what we're looking at today I want to tell you the story of a summit climber named Joseph and three ways the pits, and I mean the literal pits he was in, set him up for success relationally, his marriage, with his kids, and ultimately to impact the most amount of people in his life. So you and I can pursue our dreams. But not get mad at the pits, but learn from the pits what we need to climb summits. Let me tell you the story. It's a story of a summit climber named Joseph. And Joseph's going to go through a whole series of events. We're going to find him in a pit falling down, needing somebody to pull him out. We're going to find him crawling up Potiphar's place and, and making some headway and then being cast back down against, up against the rocks in prison before he reaches the summit. But our story begins before that. A quick reminder of who Joseph is. For many of us, we think Joseph, Mary and Joseph and Jesus. This is long before that. This is way 1,000 plus B.C., 
If you've heard of Abraham, the father of three major faiths, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, Abraham has a son named Isaac. So there's Abraham with the beard, right? Because, you know, all Bible characters have beards. So that's Abraham there on the left, if you remember Fast Track. And he has a son named Isaac, kind of a miracle son. And Isaac has a son named Jacob. And Jacob wrestles with God, thus the wrestling outfit, and he renames him Israel, which means one who wrestles. And he has 12 sons, thus the 12 on his jersey. And one of his sons' name is Joseph with the Technicolor dream coat. This is where we are in the story. So Joseph is the great-grandson of Abraham. And his brothers hate him. And they hate him specifically because of that coat, that technicolor dream coat that represents that dad loves him best, that dad cares more about him. And last week he shared with his brothers, he's 17, that he has a dream, a literal dream, that they bow down before him. In fact, not only that, the sun, the moon, and the stars bow down before him. And you can imagine the older brothers are not particularly impressed with this dream. Well, now he's being sent on an errand. Dad says, go find your brothers. They're out keeping the flock. So, wearing his Technicolor dream coat, go, 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 go. He's heading out looking for his brothers. He can't find them. He stumbles across a kind of a mystery man who says, I think I saw him up in Dotham. Huge flocks. All right, so he takes a turn. As he's making his way, he sees his brother way out there, all 11 of them with the, crop, with the, the flocks. And as he makes his way, they see him coming. And while he is still far off, the Bible says, they say to themselves, here comes the dreamer. Let's see what becomes of his dreams. We'll throw him down into this well that they found. We're never going to bow down to him get rid of everything about him. So as he makes his way up to check on him, they grab him, pull off his, his coat, the representation of everything they hated about him and envied about him, and they throw him down in this deep, dark well with no water. And they take the coat. This coat, everything they hate, everything that they despise. And they decide this coat, they're going to kill off a an animal, and cover it with blood and tell the story that their brother died. He's deep in this well, terrified, hearing his voice bounce off the well. It's dark. He begins to scream just in the panic. Guys, get me out of here! Don't do this! Don't do this to me! He says his brothers are eating a little snack, enjoying the sound of their brother in terror. One of them wanders off, an older brother. He was going to try and help Joseph escape later that day, but he had to tend to the flocks. The other ten saw a group of Ishmaelites, traitors, passing by at that time at that place. And one of them says, hey, let's not just kill him. Let's make some money off this deal. What profit is there if we can't make a little profit? So they yank their brother out of the well, and they sell him to these traders. And these traders carry him off to Egypt and sell him to a man named Potiphar. Well, I'm so glad I came to church today, Chad. Very encouraging story. This is so wonderful. Wow, I could have been golfing. Why am I here? 
What's amazing is that in this well, and when I was in Israel, I got to see some of these wells, tight, dark places. How did he have hope at the bottom of that well? And how will the lessons from this well propel him throughout his career? Because he will look back to this and look back to this and look back to this. Have you ever been in a well? Or has somebody you care about in the well? The well of depression, the well of a business wall, the well of just things not going the way you want, and it's dark, and, and, and the light seems to not be shining in, and all you hear is the bouncing of your own voice. And you wonder, because you get cynical, you've tried naive optimism, that hasn't worked. What do you do? Well, years later, when Joseph's at the summit, <laughs> ruling Egypt, and his brothers find out what God did through his life. Look what he says to them. He reveals himself to them and says, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. Okay, I'm ready for And therefore, off with your heads. So he remembers what happened in that pit. But now, do not be grieved or angry with yourself. He's thinking about them, their shame, their guilt. <laughs> because God used that pit, that person, that moment to set me up to get into this position I am now. For God sent me before you to preserve life. God used all those circumstances to put me in just the right place to serve and help the maximum amount of people. He's forgiving his enemies. He's showing compassion to people. He doesn't let bitterness take him alive. He begins to see his, his tragedies leading to success. I want some of that, even though it sounds incredibly naive. But the guy's ruling Egypt. What are you going to do? So three things he learned. Three things that the pit equipped him for accomplishing summits in his own life. Three things that the pits can do to give you unshakable optimism and hope, whatever you're facing. The first one, you ever wonder what makes people lucky? There's a book I read years ago called The Survivor's Club, and they just re-released it during COVID with a couple new chapters I read. And one of them is the story of a psychologist named Dr. Richard Wiseman, who decided to study the science of luck. Now, what a great name for a guy studying luck. Richmond Wiseman. If you want to be rich and wise, study this guy. And he says, why do some people luckily end up on mountaintop after mountaintop after mountaintop, and some people are stuck in the pits and the pits and the pits? He discovered there's a science behind luck. The first experiment they did is a newspaper experiment. That brought in a group of people, half considered themselves unlucky, the other considered themselves in life lucky. They passed out the newspaper, and they were asked to count how many newspaper photographs could be found throughout the newspaper. So page after page, whoever could do it the fastest would win a prize. As they began to flip through the newspaper, on the second, fifth, and seventh page, in a gigantic headline font, it said, there are 43 photographs, you're done. <laughs> half the people saw it and half the people didn't. They were all diligently looking to solve the, the equation. They all wanted to see, counting, 1, 2, 3, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. Those who considered themselves lucky 
noticed that headline, while those who considered themselves unlucky didn't. Also, if you kept reading, about halfway through the newspaper article, there was another big print that said, if you're reading this, go talk to the proctor now, tell them 43 photographs, and you'll get a $250 additional prize. And as he did this study over and over again, here's what he found. Lucky people are pursuing one goal, but their eyes are open to other opportunities around them. Unlucky people are so focused on one thing, they miss out on other opportunities around them. Now, that is certainly true in Joseph's life, because when he reveals himself to his brothers years, years, years later, he's now 30, not 17, he will overhear them describe what happened that day in the pit. And here's how they describe it. What they did, what they experienced. They said to one another, You're, we are truly guilty concerning our brother. We saw the anguish of his soul. We didn't serve him. We saw he was in pain. He pleaded with us, and we would not hear. Therefore, the distress we're in now is because we're getting what we deserve. And Reuben, the guy who had wandered off, said, hey guys, I told you. Don't sin against the boy, and you wouldn't listen. You sold him off anyway. So they know this was evil. This was not God did this. This was evil, trauma, terrible things that happened. And to know that God can use bad things doesn't mean that God caused bad things. This was evil stuff that happened. And yet look how Joseph, who's now, because of those traitors bringing him to Egypt, serving in Potiphar's house, look how he describes what happened to him. Like if I'm in slavery, I'm not thinking, I wonder what opportunity might be here for God to use me. I wonder how I could serve others. Look at Joseph. His master, the guy who bought him in Egypt, saw that God was with him. Joseph found favor in his sight. He served him. He promoted him. He looked for other ways to, to help the people around him. Then he made him overseer of his house, the master did. All that he had put under his authority, he gets oversight. He gets authority. He learns how to manage. He learns the Egyptian language. He begins to learn how business works in that culture. All these lessons will set him up for ruling the country in less than 10 years. All that he had. Because God continued to bless him even in the pit. There were opportunities all around him. How about your eyes? Are your eyes open to things you don't expect even while you're pursuing a goal? I was in Nashville several years ago and I was doing a speaking conference. I, I go to conferences you know, every four or five years just to kind of challenge myself and train myself. And this one guy was telling a story. His name's Ken Davis who led our, our talk that day. So he walked into an elevator one day on his way to a speaking event. Door open, door closed, hits the button, waits, moves, 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 stops. Door doesn't open. Not panicking yet. Elevator moves a little bit more, or shakes a little bit more. He hears a noise like the machinery's working, but it doesn't open and close. He begins, pretty soon after the third time, he begins to panic. I'm stuck in this elevator. There's no phone. And just kind of in those out-of-control moments when fear takes over, this has been about 20 minutes now, he begins to just pound on the door. Hey, help me! Somebody get me out of here! I'm stuck in this elevator alone! And as he's pounding on the door of the elevator, he feels someone tap him on the shoulder. He turns around. There are two people standing behind him. And they were angels. No, 
sees two people staying behind them. And they're like, hey, um, the doors only open on that side in the basement. They've been opening over here the whole time. <laughs> and that, that elevator had opened twice. And people had stepped in both times. They wondered why this crazy person's looking at the back wall, pounding on the elevator door. And yet that's what we do when we say that was the dream, that was the goal, that's what God was supposed to do. Bam, 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 bam. And God may be opening other doors all around you, but your eyes weren't open to see the possibilities. It's called what psychologists call inattentive blindness. Maybe you've seen the YouTube video years ago about count how many times a bounce pass goes on between these, these uh, teammates. And you're counting one, two, three, four, 26. Then they say, did you see the big black bear? And the whole time the ball was bouncing around, a guy in a giant bear suit has been wandering around through the team. And you're like, how did I miss that? Inattentive blindness. Look it up on YouTube. All right, second thing. If you want to be lucky, if you want to be equipped for the mountaintop, not only do your eyes need to be open, but people who are lucky, they thought differently. They would think about how they would be open to making the most out of whatever opportunity came their way, good or bad. They created, luck wasn't as much circumstance and what happened as a way of thinking about your circumstances and what happened. Dr. Wiseman found that almost all of us know 300 people by name. And the people who were lucky could create a network of luck from those 300 people. Because 300 people were just two connections away from a network of 90,000. They had things in play the tools they needed to remember that whether good comes their way or bad comes their way, they could open to the possibility that all of it could be used to make a difference. And Joseph does this in an amazing way, a supernatural way that I want access to, and maybe you do too. He names his kids the very tools he needs. One son he names Manasseh, and the other he names Ephraim. And every time he calls their name, it's another reminder that his mind is open to thinking about trouble and difficulty in a very different way. See, if you want to be lucky, if you want to pursue your dreams, you have to have your mind open to making the most of whatever mountains you find. What do their names mean? Well, his one son's name is Manasseh, which means, for God has made me forget my toil or my pain. Oh, I had pain. Evil was done against me, but I'm just continuing to ask God, don't let bitterness take in. Manasseh, forget about that. What else he's got for me? Forget about that pain. What's next? His other son he named Ephraim, which means, for God has caused me to be fruitful in the land of my affliction. That even though I'm in affliction, even though I'm in a spot I don't want to be in, God can bring fruit out of the good. God can make the most out of even what bad things have done to me. Now, if you've got kids or you've got parents, I bet you have one of the two. How many times have you said your kids' names? Call them on the phone, call them to dinner. How many times have your parents said your name? You're like, oh, it's all over and over and over. He had this constant reminder built into his life. Every day he was saying, hey, Ephraim, hey, Manasseh, come on, it's time to eat. Hey, let's go. We're going on a little journey. We're heading down to the Nile for the river. Hey, Manasseh. Hey, Ephraim. Every day a reminder of this mindset. Forget about the things, the bad things that happen, and let God use the soil of that affliction to bring fruit into my life. 
thousands and thousands and thousands of daily reminders of this mindset he had, how things could be different. I heard a story a couple weeks ago of Greg Clark. He was telling his story about uh, becoming a financial advisor. And he was really, really good at finding patterns in numbers that other people couldn't see. He headed that down to New York, and he became not just kind of the smart ones. He was kind of the smart, smart ones in his own category. He knew the real money wasn't in being an analyst as much as a portfolio manager, and so he kept working it and kept working it. He wasn't really a person of faith or God. That was not something he needed or was really open to. But, man, he became that portfolio manager. And he had one ex-president that he managed their portfolio and a couple treasury secretaries, and he was at the top of the stack but chasing the herd. That was his dream. Then he decided to get into artwork, and so he started pursuing art. He loved the community. He loved looking into artwork. He loved investing in artwork. And again, he was chasing the herd. The same things that kind of helped him be good at, at financial analyzing made him very good at art analyzing. But one day he walked into this art museum. It was a sculpture that nobody knew. And there was this particular sculpture that just, he said it struck him. Almost like a tuning fork to his soul, he described it as. So he bought this thing for like three grand. And he was so struck by it because all of his art critics and all of his friends who were into art were like, who's this guy? Why would you spend that kind of money at that? Just, that's ridiculous expense. He said, oh, there's something about this spoke to me. Well, about three months later, that artist makes it big and his $3,000 investment is worth 150000 And suddenly he gets uh, announced in New York Magazine as one of the top 25 collectors in New York in the United States. And now he's not chasing the herd, he is the herd. And he enjoyed it, he loved it. These were his dreams fulfilled, and yet there's still something in his success to say, is there anything more to life? His wife got into religion, and she was always trying something out. (laughs) He described the story, she's into tarot cards, she's into reincarnation, and now she's into Christianity. Well, something in her began to change in this journey, different from her other spiritual pursuits. And she began to invite him to look into the Bible. What struck him, because at the same time, that, that, that piece of art, that sculpture that was like that tuning fork to his soul, it moved from being a piece of art that inspired him to an investment he had to reproduce. It almost spoiled it for him, because it was no longer kind of about this, uh, this spiritual connection he had as much as it was just a, another way to keep up and be part of the herd. For whatever reason, that opened him up, and he began to read the Bible for the first time and discover who Jesus was and began to look at the followers of Jesus who all died for this thing they believed for the first time in his life, he'd been open to all kinds of things, but he'd never been open to spirituality. Over an 18-month journey, not because his life was in the pits, but because his life was at the top of the stack and it didn't satisfy his soul, he began to be open to new things. And Jesus and God offered a perspective that Joseph found. If God could use an old Roman cross to change the world, and God could use a pit to transform Egypt, he was suddenly open that God might do that in his life too. And he just decided in his journey to be a little more open-minded and found that God added to his life. Jesus enhanced his life, didn't detract from it. How about you? Are your eyes open? Is your brain open? Lastly, luck is determined, according to Dr. Wiseman, by those who just have a, a life perspective that's open that tragedy might be part of my success story. In fact, he gave puzzles out to people, and they were impossible puzzles. Like, literally, they could not be solved. 
The unlucky people, 60% of them started with the assumption it couldn't be solved and they didn't even put any effort in. 60%. 30% of the lucky people thought it probably is impossible to give it a shot. To which you're like, well, that's why it's better to be unlucky. I don't want to be naive. But he found that those who thought there might be a way of looking at this or solving this are those who attacked life and its challenges in unique ways that brought them to more and more summits. And we definitely see this in Joseph's life. He saw that his tragedies, the impossible moments, there's no way to get to that dream of changing the world from that pit was very much how he thought. I mentioned this last week. Let me read it again. Look at the words Joseph says in his perspective here. He is so open that tragedy might be part of his success. Joseph said, do not be afraid. He's revealed himself to his brothers again. Now he's at the top of the stack. You meant evil against me. We're not going to sugarcoat what happened. It's not naivety. But God took the tragedy and the evil and the trauma that occurred to me and he meant it or used it for good in order to save many lives. God brought me here and I've literally saved hundreds of people, served thousands of people, millions of people because of how God equipped me through the pits. Now, therefore, do not be afraid of me because now he could like, I will provide for you. What? I'm going to take care of you too. I'm going to serve you. Same way I serve Potiphar, same way I serve the prisoners. We'll talk about next week. Amazing. Amazing. And he comforted them. <clears throat> comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph had this sense, not that all things are good, but that God can use all things, tragedies even, to accomplish good. And the serendipitous way in which God used Someone who pointed his way to his brothers, a well, the timing of some caravans to get him to Potiphar that ends up getting him to prison. He sees God's handiwork through it all. And that gives him confidence, unshakable hope. You ever heard the word serendipity? Do you know where it comes from? It comes from an old Persian legend. The king of serendip. The king of serendip had three sons. And they were lazy. All day long they just laid around ordered people around, ate in comfort and luxury. They wouldn't say it was a problem. They said they were enjoying their life. Classic second generation wealth. The king is very, very concerned about this. He comes to him, he says, what are you going to do with your life? He goes, more of this. He said, no. You must go out and find out what really matters. They looked at each other. Have we really become entitled? Well, dad says we have to. So they all three went out. The first came out and worked one day with a farmer. And all day long, got up early, milked the cows, toiled the fields, pulled in the crops. And that night he laid on the straw and he's like, this is no way for a prince to live. And yet, he had a certain pride about the work he did that day. There was something honest about it, something almost beautiful about it. And though his back ached and though he didn't want to continue this, he did discover the value of work. And, and the next morning as he was still pondering this, he got to see the farmer whose son was traveling after him. And he said to his son, hey, 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 dad, dad, look at this. And dad, look at this. And son, son, let's work on this together. 
And the wife called in to say, oh, my king, come in, let's have dinner together. And he saw a family that loved each other and cared for each other and worked hard together. And though they didn't have everything he had, they had something he didn't. The second son came and worked for a carpenter. They came to this dilapidated house with this terrible roof. The woman who lived there was very, very poor. She was poor because she had given away services to help the needy in the community her whole life. Well, they spent the day sawing and pounding as they restored her roof. At the end of the day, he too laid in the straw and said, this is no way for a prince to live. The next day they came and she said, I cannot pay you. What can we do? And he said, oh, you owe me nothing. I know your story of how kind you've been to those in our community for so many years. Let me give to you what you've given unto others. And the prince was struck by the beauty and the value of kindness. Then there was a third prince who came and worked for a baker. And as they were working through the day, the the baker's daughter would always keep her distance. In fact, she had a veil that covered her face. He tried to joke with her. He tried to entertain her. And all day long they were kneading and pushing and rolling and and getting the bread ready and getting up early. And and he could just never get her attention. And that day he laid in in the hay and just said, this is no way for a prince to live. There's something striking about his day, but he still wondered about that woman. The next day he talked to the baker. He said they were walking along on a path, and she was still about six, seven feet in front of her. He says, what's with your daughter? Is she not like me? Oh, she's just a little aloof, but that's okay. As she turned a corner, the veil moved for just a second. He could see scars on her face that she was embarrassed of, and the baker said, Yeah, those scars are a reminder that there was an accident in the bakery many years ago and it burned her face and we thought we were going to lose her. But I'm so thankful for every one of those scars because it's a reminder to us that her life is precious and that we almost lost her. And we took so many things for granted. Now every day is a gift and every moment of life is a gift. The prince was struck at the beauty of thankfulness for every day. Well, they all came back to the king. And as they were talking, the king overheard them talk about, you're not going to believe what I learned. I learned the value of hard work. I learned the value of kindness. I learned the value of being thankful. And the king of Serendip said, ah, the kingdom is in good hands. For now you value what matters. Serving others. Working hard. And being thankful. These are the things the Bible offers and describes to us. So here's my question to you. If you think about those three ways the pit equipped Joseph, do you want some of that? And, and before we get to which one, are you open to being open to where you may not be open? Right, before we get to whether you're open, are you just open to being open to where you might not be open? That maybe God, like Greg Clark, might play a role. Jesus might have something to offer besides a kind of religious crutch. And which of those three strike you? Are you open like Joseph was, that your eyes could be open? I didn't expect it to go this way, but maybe God had a little bit different direction than I thought. Are you open to serving in in jobs or job roles that maybe you don't prefer? Because God might use that to teach you some things. Are you open to a different kind of mindset? A mindset that says, God, help me make the most of whatever opportunity you bring my way. I'm even open to bring God more into the equation because I want some of that perspective. I'm not sure how it works, but I want the fruits of what Joseph had in his life. 
And are you open to this new perspective? That instead of spending 10 more years in bitterness and 10 more years telling that story of the ter- terrible thing that happened, that maybe you want to say, yes, it was terrible, but God used it to propel me to a new summit. As you look at our church over the last two years, it's been amazing what God has done. You know, COVID has shut down a lot of churches, some permanently, a lot of businesses, some permanently. But if you look at the, the analytics on those who watch online, the ideas it proposed, like putting a tent in place, so those watching in the tent, new service times, all the ways we have sorted and switched and moved and adapted over the years, over the last 18 months, we're finding that those who are watching online, those who are coming to services, our attendance and our impact in people's, our viewership, for lack of a better term, is up higher than ever. A time that felt like the pits for all of us. But we were so committed to continue to serve others in whatever way we can, to change methods, to connect with people, to help people find a God that could help them with all of the challenges that happen. God has used this time in our church to enhance what he's been doing, not detract from it. And as many of you know, who've been coming back for the last couple of weeks now, and we now have an 8.30 service, a 9.45 service, an 11 service, and we're just continuing to see those populate with people. And every week I'm hearing stories. People who watch from out of town. Relatives, friends who've said, I've, I'd never heard about Horizon, and now I've been watching it every week, and God is healing my marriage, and God is growing me. That Horizon is a place that we can serve other people. Just this week, I talked with families who are dealing with some crisis. I, I sat with somebody who's had a stroke this week and prayed with them as they're facing uncertainty. I prayed with someone who was, who was in the ER because God prompted me to give a call to them unrelated. As you look at our team and all the ways God's working, I would just encourage you, we're in an exciting time in our church where we are building and teaching people the real stuff they need to be lucky in life. So join us. If you haven't served at Horizon, you've been coming for many, many years, you've been served by parkers and greeters and people who've, who've packed programs for your kids. Maybe you say, hey, I want to serve others because that's where success is. How can I give my time to a place that loves people and serves people and our DNA is how to impact people? I, why would I not want to give my time to that of all the ways I could give away my precious time? Maybe financially the same way. You're saying, listen, I haven't given financially to Horizon because I guess you don't need it. Well, we do need your gifts. And the reason we've been able to serve you so well is because other people have given to serve you so well. And maybe God's prompting you to say, I want to give to a place that serves people the way I've been served and serves people the way my family's been served and has family fun nights and kids programs and, and, and exploring services and equipping services. It makes the Bible come alive where I'm not falling asleep in church. It's really changing me and my family. Join us. Is this next phase what God's going to do in our church's future is an amazing way. I don't know what holds. I don't know what the future holds. We've got some plans, but we're open to not just the plans we have, but to whatever God brings our way. So, join us in helping those around us with your time, your treasure, and your talents. Because all of us can experience the best kind of life when we anchor ourselves in God the way Joseph did. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the incredible faithfulness we've seen in the ups and downs of our last two years and how helpful you've been, how faithful you've been, and how you've worked in the midst of it. 
And Father, we thank you for each person here who's kicking the tires on faith. We just ask that you would allow us to serve them, to bring data to them as they need it, to help them discover what you'd have for them. And we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. We will see you next week for Father's Day. Buy your gifts for dad. So we discover what kind of a dad Joseph really was. We'll see you next week.